Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 46. In this episode, we will be hearing from Joel Griffin as he continues his study with us on the Book of Ruth. The title of his message is Our Little Lives, God's Big Plan. We expect to post Joel's final session on Ruth later this week. In this session, I'd like to consider with you that redemption is God's plan. Redemption is God's plan and that God is sovereign over circumstances. And this question in the text of Ruth, in verse number 19 of chapter 2, where did you glean today, leads us into this idea that there is something significant behind what might seem to be happenstance in Ruth's experience. She just happened to be gleaning. She came across a certain field. She began to glean. But later on, as the story is told, and as Naomi asks her, where did you glean today? We begin to see that there are great significances to Ruth's activities, even beyond her understanding. And let us all just appreciate together from the book of Ruth that there are many things about our lives and about our Christian experiences that have implications beyond our understanding and that God is sovereign over our lives. William Cowper was a man who lived in the 1700s and in his adult life he met Christian minister who had once been slave trader John Newton. And John Newton befriended William Cowper and invited him to do visitation work with him, encouraging Christians, and also to begin to write hymns. John Newton wrote many hymns, and he encouraged William Cowper in the writing of hymns. William Cowper was a depressive person, very melancholic, and he struggled deeply with mental health and struggled deeply in life. William Cowper, because of those struggles in life, penned many beautiful, uplifting, and encouraging hymns. In 1779, William Cowper and John Newton together published a hymn book called The Only Hymns. And one of those hymns in the hymnal is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I'd like you to listen to William Cowper's depth of insight and his appreciation of God's greatness despite the hardships of life. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Cowper was struggling with this enormous concept of God's sovereign control over us in our lives. Lives which are often not easy. As we consider the book of Ruth in this session, let us grapple with this enormous concept of how God is able to help us through the pain of our life by giving us the reassurance 
that he is able to free us from brokenness and oppression and bring good even out of evil. Redemption is God's sovereign plan. In session one, we learn that redemption means hope for the wounded and the oppressed. And in session two, we learn that God's redemption is profoundly gracious. And in this session, we'll focus on the fact that redemption is God's sovereign plan. God is surely acting out the plan of redemption. He is surely bringing to those who are oppressed freedom through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is both great and good. And he has a sovereign program that is centered on granting freedom and release to us from brokenness and sin and evil through the redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Now notice this, continuing the quotation, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things in earth. This verse from Ephesians links the concept of redemption to God's sovereign planning. Redemption linked to God's eternal plan. Those phrases like all wisdom and insight and the mystery of his will, that phrase, his purpose, calls to mind God's great control and plan for the ages. Are we not thankful that God's eternal plan, the plan of eternal God, is wrapped up in graciousness, is wrapped up in providing redemption to us? That verse says that God is going to bring together everything in Christ, things in heaven and things in the earth. That seems impossible, doesn't it? How can heaven and earth come together? And sometimes in life, we have great questions and we don't know how God is going to work things out. We don't know how God is going to keep his promises because the situation seems so difficult. How is heaven going to meet earth in this situation? God has a program through the redemption in Christ Jesus, that everything is going to be united. Things in heaven and things in earth. God's program cannot be stopped. It's a program for good for you and for me. When we go to Revelation chapter 21 at the end of the Bible, it's exactly what we see, isn't it? We see, we see heaven coming down to earth. The dwelling place of God is with man. With us, that's impossible. But that's possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. With God, all things are possible. Let's just think about Romans chapter 8, verse 28 for a moment. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And maybe that verse is something you struggle with. Maybe that's something I've struggled with. How is everything working together for good when things are so painful? I think that my definition of good is often different than God's definition of good. God's definition of good doesn't always mean easy. It doesn't always mean painless. But it does mean that 
God's program is moving forward in our life and that we are becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's good redemptive plan for us. Remember God's taking that wrecked vehicle, as it were, from the garbage dump and turning it into a thing of beauty? Remember that redemptive program that God is taking the sinners who were so far from him and he is doing a masterpiece out of them, out of us. Yes, that is God's program. And that program is working together for good in the power of God. And so in the book of Ruth, we see God's providential kindness presiding over the affairs of normal people like Ruth, like Naomi, like Boaz, and often far beyond their understanding of the implications of their daily activities, God is doing something massive. That should be peace to us, knowing that God is doing things despite what we don't know about. God is doing things despite the difficulties of our life. And maybe even in this present circumstance of the pandemic, it's helpful to know that despite the financial oppression you may be experiencing, or the isolation you may be experiencing, or the loss of a loved one that maybe you have experienced, and the searing pain of that brokenness, that God is capable of even bringing good out of that darkness. And when we're trudging a pathway that is so dark and in a valley so deep, we must remember the things that God has shown us on the bright days and on the days on top of the mountain. So let's remember some of these beautiful things from the book of Ruth and reinforce to ourselves this lesson in Ruth. Let's read together, starting in Ruth chapter 2, verse number 1. We're going to catch a few verses in chapter 2. Then we're going to read chapter 3 and catch a few verses in chapter 4. Let's read together, Ruth 2 and verse number 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And in verse number four, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Boaz just happens to come and visit his field when Ruth is on it. And of course, we know because we have God's perspective in the situation that it wasn't just happening that way, that it was God's sovereign plan. Let's look at verse number 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so this phrase, that he is one of our redeemers, it has massive significance. And we see that God has overruled, and Ruth has come across the field of one who is able to redeem Ruth and Naomi, from their oppressive situation. Chapter 3, verse number 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. 
Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Chapter 4, verse 1. Just a few verses here in chapter 4 to conclude the reading. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Verse number 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. As we consider that redemption is God's sovereign plan, let's think about three main things. First of all, we're going to think about two big decisions. Second of all, let's take a look at Ruth's little role in God's big plan. And then thirdly, a little baby with a big impact. A little baby with a big impact. Okay, first of all, two big decisions. The first decision that I'd like to think about with you is comparing Orpah's decision in chapter 1 and Ruth's decision in chapter 1. Massive difference. Orpah returns to false gods. She returns to the Moabite community. Ruth forsakes false gods and follows Naomi back to the land of Israel. Massive, massive implications based on those decisions. Because Ruth chose the one true God and followed Naomi, she becomes incorporated 
into God's sovereign plan and becomes an ancestor of the future Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Orpah, on the other hand, disappears from the pages of redemptive history. And so we see how decisions in life do matter. They've got an impact. Yes, on one hand, God is sovereign and he is in control, but he has created us as spiritual beings with free will. And he has granted us the ability to make decisions. And we are held morally responsible for those decisions. And that's an important thing to keep in mind as we read the Bible. Yes, God is in control, but he has granted us free will. And God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are two truths that go together side by side in parallel all the way through the Bible. So we've compared Orpah and Ruth and the massive difference between them. And now let's think about Boaz in chapter 4 and this other man who could have been the man to redeem Naomi and Ruth from their poverty and oppression. He was a nearer redeemer. He was a closer relative than Boaz was. A closer relative. He had first option to redeem, but he decided not to. He was afraid that in some sense, by redeeming Ruth, somehow the inheritance and the passing on of his personal wealth would come into question. But Boaz, he decides to redeem. Interestingly, in chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz, in the English Standard Version, refers to this other redeemer as friend in English. But if you look in the Hebrew language, in the dictionary, the term behind what is translated friend in the English Standard Version is poloni almoni. Poloni almoni, it's a rhyme, and it could be translated in a dynamic sense as a certain someone. A certain someone walked by. And this certain someone happens to be the one who could redeem before Boaz has the option to redeem. And once again, we see the narrator is tickling our minds and helping us understand that these events that seem to be just day-to-day -day events are actually part of an enormous program of God, not only in providing redemption to Ruth and Naomi, but in providing a lineage for the ultimate Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this man who chooses not to redeem, he goes unnamed. We don't learn his name. He's just so-and-so, that certain someone. But Boaz's name is forever inscribed in history as the one who redeems. He becomes a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer. Boaz is the great-grandfather of Israel's greatest king, David, and is the ancestor of the Lord Jesus. So decisions matter. But how much do our decisions matter? How much do our decisions matter? Our decisions and our free will are not so influential that God is no longer sovereign. God is sovereign, and yes, we are decision makers. Recall that this whole story begins with a bad decision by Elimelech to move to Moab. That was a bad decision. But then we see that despite a bad decision, God is still on the throne. And God redeems through the most unlikely of sources, through Ruth. Ruth, who came into the family because of that original bad decision for Elimelech to move his family. And so we see that even through our mistakes, God is never stumped. He is able to continue carrying out his program of redemption, God's sovereign plan. 
In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. The people of the community are saying, Blessed be the Lord who has created a situation of redemption. They're not praising Boaz, even though he was the one who redeemed. They're not praising Naomi for knowing the Jewish law and counseling Ruth so well. They're not praising Ruth, who was so diligent in the fields. Yes, those are all important things. And those three key players in the story, they made a lot of decisions that mattered. But ultimately, redemption came and was recognized by the people of the community because God was on the throne. And so we have on one hand, God's on the throne in our lives. And on the other hand, our decisions matter and they go in parallel in our lives. Timothy Keller, in a sermon titled, God's Plans, Your Plans, speaks about Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 9. And that verse goes like this. The mind of a person will plan his ways, and Yahweh will direct his steps. And I'm quoting the Lexham English Bible, that translation of that verse. The mind of a person will plan his ways, Yahweh will direct his steps. And so Keller points out that that verse should not encourage us to say, Lord, here's my plan. Now, please bless it. Have you ever tried that? Lord, here's my plan. Please bless it. Rather, it means that we are responsible for our decisions and for our conduct and for our behavior. And at the same time, as we do that, God is going to be going about establishing His will. We plan our ways and our behavior and God directs our steps. His will is established. So we should focus in our lives on our conduct. What is the right thing to do according to God's word? And then we leave the results up to God who is in sovereign control. So both are important. Our choices matter and that God is in control. It's not either or. And we can get into doctrinal problems if we do either or on these. It's actually both and. Our decisions matter. And God is in control. Who would in their right mind want an existence where God is entirely hands off? How frightening is that thought? That everything in our life, imagine with me now, do this thought experiment. Everything in our life boils down to our decisions. And that God is hands off in our existence. That is a frightening frightening thought. And that's the one extreme where we overemphasize our actions and our decisions and our will. Think about the other extreme, fatalism, where our decisions no longer matter and God has got everything predetermined and nothing that we do is going to affect that and it's just going to be fatalism. That's discouraging and thankfully that's not true. And that's not what the Bible presents to us. God in his word presents to us that both are true, that your decisions, dear brother or dear sister, are important, and that we should honor him with them, but also that he is in control. And even when we mess up, God is still on the throne. Okay, so we've thought about two big decisions, and we've compared the decisions of Ruth and Orpah and Boaz and this other unnamed man, and we thought about the interplay between God being on the throne and our decisions. Let's think about now, Ruth's little role in God's big plan. Let's just point out a few really important loaded statements. In Ruth chapter 2, verse number 3, we have, 
she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. A loaded statement with a lot of significance. Ruth chapter 2 verse 4, Behold, Boaz came and arrived from Bethlehem. Every morning as we begin our day, we can give the day over to God, can't we? And as we give the day over to God, we can take comfort in the fact in knowing if we're like Ruth, just going to a certain place, God is in control. We're going to meet a certain person, God is in control. We're off to work, God is in control. And God is able to weave eternal significance into the humdrum of our daily life. These loaded statements in the narrative of Ruth lead us to that. Now let's just think about for a minute divine agents. Divine agents. Unwittingly, at the beginning of this story, Ruth and Boaz, they don't understand the full implication of their relationship. And they don't understand the full implication in all of history. And even at the end of their lives, they likely didn't understand that. But Ruth and Boaz became agents of God performing his plan. Isn't that interesting? And we as well, we become agents of God's will as we go about our daily, our daily business. In Ruth chapter 2, um, Boaz is speaking to, to Ruth and he really has a prayer. He says in verse number 11, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Here, look at this prayer in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's so interesting to hear Boaz's prayer that Ruth be blessed for her faithfulness and that she be repaid for her faithfulness and that she have shelter. And then in chapter 3, see that Boaz is actually the one who God uses to answer that prayer. Has that ever happened to you? Where you're praying and then you realize that maybe God can use you to be the answer to that prayer? That happened here to Boaz. And there's a play on words. There's a play on words because in chapter 3 verse 9, Ruth says to Boaz, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Now that word, your wings, can also mean the corners of one's garment. And in the Old Testament, putting one's garment on someone else explains some sort of ownership over them. And so Ruth is saying, put your garment over me and claim me. You're a redeemer. But that term also means wings. And so as Boaz puts his wings over Ruth, God is putting his wings over Ruth. Boaz is God's agent of redemption. It's amazing that we can be used by God to see his work done on earth. Perhaps one of the, the foremost things that might come to our minds is that we can publish the gospel of God's redemption, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can be ministers of reconciliation. We can be agents for God's plan on earth. God is inviting us to be part of his plan. And only eternity is going to reveal what you have done and how you have been an agent for God on earth. As we continue to think about Ruth's little role in God's big plan, let's think about the next right thing. The next right thing. And sometimes we become over-occupied 
with the grandiose concept of, of God's plan for us. What is God's will? And we want to have God's divine, eternal perspective on our life. But actually, God rarely permits that we have that perspective. God is asking us to live day to day, moment by moment, step by step, according to his word. And he's asking us to trust him with the big picture. When Job asked for that almighty big picture view, when he asked for God's perspective on his suffering, God simply reminded Job that he was a finite human and that such things belong to the almighty. And so it's good for us to be less occupied with the grandiose. Leave that to God. God is sovereign. God is on the throne. And in the future, when we're in heaven, I think God's going to give us a lot of playbacks. And it'll be so interesting to see how he was working. When all we knew was what the lamp of God's word was showing us for the next step of life. Ruth was doing the next right thing. And God was doing so much bigger. God is able to take your faithfulness, dear sister, in the small things and have them echo into eternity in his plan. We should be occupied in just doing the next right thing according to God's word. Can we trust God to lead us into the darkness, into the unknown? Can we trust his word to not lead us astray? Can we trust that he is good even when we don't understand? Can we do the next right thing the way that Ruth was doing it? You notice that out of love and diligence, Ruth goes to the field to glean. She just knows she needs food. She knows that Naomi needs food. And she decides to demonstrate that love and diligence by going and getting some food. She's respectful of authority and she shows an attitude of humility and thankfulness. When she meets Boaz, she's doing the next right thing. She's honoring the Lord with her behavior. She follows Naomi's counsel really carefully. And she stayed in Boaz's field for the rest of the harvest. Now, sometimes you got to watch out where we get counsel from. Because in chapter 1, Naomi counseled her to take off and go back to Moab. But at this point in time, Ruth has the insight to know that this is good counsel coming from Naomi. And she continues in Boaz's field. After Boaz responds favorably to Ruth, Naomi tells Ruth, just wait. Just wait. The matter is now in his hands. He will not rest until it's settled. I wonder if you're in a waiting stage of life and God is asking you just to wait. The next right thing to do right now for you is just to wait. That is so hard. We love to be moving and doing and trying to take things into our hands. And then many times in life, God says, now wait. Wait for me and wait for my plan. Be encouraged in this waiting period of your life. God has something for you. He's got everything under control. And so the next right thing, can we be like that? Can we be like that? Just doing the next right thing according to God's word. I love that age-old illustration of the ship. If the big tall ship is stationary, you can't turn it. But if it's active, if it's moving, if it's in motion, a little rudder can steer 
that massive ship. And so when we're just doing the next right thing, like Ruth, like Boaz, like Naomi in this story, God is at work and he's moving us and using us for his mighty plan with mighty ramifications. Casting Crown has a song and it's called The Very Next Thing. And I'd just like to remind you of those lyrics. I spend all my time dreaming what the future is going to bring. When all of this time, there's a world passing by right in front of me. Set my sights on tomorrow while I'm tripping over today. Who says big things are somewhere off in the distance? I don't want to look back just to see all the times that I missed it. I want to be here and now, starting right here, right now, with the very next words of love to be spoken, to the very next heart that's shattered and broken, to the very next way you're going to use me, show me the next thing. I'll do the next thing. Let my very next breath breathe out a song of praise to you. With my very next step, be on a road that was planned by you. Lord, wherever you're leading me, that's where I want to be. With the very next words of love to be spoken. Awesome, awesome lyrics that point us to this massive truth. That the very next thing that we can do according to God's word God can take that and weave it into his mighty plan. So Ruth's little role in God's great big plan. Let's just think finally now of a little baby with a big impact. We can't talk about God's plan as unfolded in this book, in this story of Ruth, without remembering the genealogy at the end of this book. At the end of chapter 4, there's a genealogy. And it starts with Perez, and interestingly... Perez was born in a situation of leveret marriage, just like here in Ruth. And then it goes down and down until we come to Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The story ends off pointing us to the fact that God used the daily life of these people to do something enormous. He incorporated them into the genealogy of the Messiah. On the heels of the very first sin in Genesis chapter 3, God gives a promise. The seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head that there's going to be salvation. And then after that, all the way through the Old Testament, we see genealogies. We see tracing of what? Tracing of seed. Tracing of descendants. And authors in the Old Testament take painstaking care to trace the messianic line until we come to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 where those gospel writers make abundantly clear that they were all, all of those genealogies were pointing us forward to the arrival of a baby. A baby to be born in Bethlehem. The community would gather around that little baby on the outside seeming insignificance but cosmic importance in God's plan that little baby in Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's named Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Obed is a little baby. And he's born where? He's born in Bethlehem. And he is the fruition of redemption. He is the proof of freedom from oppression. He is the forefather of King David. And of the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this story leaves us longing for the future. Longing for the arrival 
of that seed of the woman who would ultimately crush, bruise the serpent's head and provide eternal redemption by his own suffering and resurrection. At the end of the story, we have a little baby, a little baby born in Bethlehem, surrounded by community members rejoicing for his birth. And he's a symbol of the Savior who would be born, a Savior who would be born in Bethlehem in the house of bread, who would be the bread of life. And those shepherds, they gather around and they're rejoicing because this is the one that God had promised. Did you know that you're part of a genealogy too? I'm part of the genealogy of redemption as well. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are part of that genealogy. Listen to the words of John 1 verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. May God bless his word.